This podcast is an initiative of core to ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen, Kiwikiran and Ultragenics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution, employer, organisation or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast covering a roundup of rare bone disease highlights from ASBMR 2021. I'm Dr. Eric Rush and I'm a clinical geneticist at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm joined today by Dr. Marylise Ekoff. Marylise, perhaps you could introduce yourself. Yes, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm an endocrinologist and lead the Center for Rare Bone Diseases at the Amsterdam UMC, the Netherlands. We have a large clinical genetic imaging and preclinical team dedicated to rare bone diseases, including FOPOI, FD, hereditary OP, osteoporosis, and Camarati Engelmann. And at the ASBMR, I was very happy to see so many interesting abstracts in all these areas. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and Mary Lisa, I think we've seen a lot of really interesting rare bone disease data over the course of ASBMR this year. You know, there was also some interesting data which went beyond the traditional skeletal aspects of diseases. And, you know, one in particular that stood out to be was a poster called The Patient Clinical Journey and Socioeconomic Impact of OI, a Systematic Review. To me, this was really an interesting abstract because it really talked more about the patient journey it talked about humanistic impacts and the economic impacts of osteogenesis imperfecta. And I think that's not necessarily one that we explore as maybe as, as much as we should, but this was looking at 25 years of data, which I was really impressed about. And really what it found is there aren't a lot of clinical guidelines that integrate a lot of these concepts of, especially when it, when it concerns things like equity and providing treatment and, you know, socioeconomic mediators for access to treatment. And I think that's really important. And really what this abstract found is that there's a lot of different tools that people are using for this, but you know, there's a lot of limitations and a lot of gaps in the, the literature and how we care for these, these patients with OI. And in a lot of cases, it's really limited to a North American and Western European point of view. And so there's a lot of other people in the world out there. And so it'd be nice to fill some of those gaps as well. So really, again, you know, significant gaps in clinical guidelines, really significant gaps in how we transition people to care from adult to care, from pediatric care, and, and how we care for people as they age with OI. And also, there was not a lot of talk about the economic costs that were associated with OI, and I thought that was very interesting. Uh, really interesting. Does it reflect what you see in practice or your own patients? It really it really does. You know, it really does reflect what I see in practice. I, I find that here in the United States, you know, many of our patients have very different payers. Some of our, our patients have public payers. Some of our, our patients have private payers. And everybody's a little bit different. And it definitely impacts the way that they receive care. Uh, so I, I think this really resonated with me because of what I see with my patient journey. So I'm interested to hear, Marylise, what, what presentation stood out for you from the conference? Well, there was a really interesting abstract that also went beyond the skeletal aspects. The authors focused on the extraskeletal manifestation in osteogenesis imperfecta. It, it was uh, called the osteogenesis imperfecta causes intrinsic respiratory system changes in a study in mouse models of OI of the Carroll group. And I was really impressed by the design. They managed to perform extensive lung function tests in mice that mimic uh, type 3 OI and also looked at the lung tissue themselves. 
they found impaired lung function tests and, as well, major lung tissue abnormalities, including reduced compliance, increased elescence of the respiratory system, but also the uh, pulmonary histology shows alveolar simplification and enlarged acinar airspace, indicating a defective alveolarization. This really sheds new light on the previously identified lung dysfunction, which were mainly attributed to the abnormalities of the chest wall. Well, and this certainly applies very nicely to what I've seen in the patient population for OI, particularly in those patients with severe disease, uh, very much like the OIM and the CRTAP mouse that they explored as a front part of the study. Marilise, I know you've investigated lung function in OI. Could you tell us a little bit about your own work in that realm? Yes, uh, thank you. We we have done a review, performed a review, and here we also found that a part in a patient's bizarre eye can be explained by the chest wall, but there's really also intrinsic or a really ovular factor in it. And we are now looking at more histology as well. So maybe that will be a next abstract. What is important, so important for the OI patients to know more and to be able to be preventive in this way. That's very interesting research. Uh, Eric, were there any abstracts that will make you change your clinical practice now? Uh, you're back from the conference? That, that's an interesting question. And, and I would have to say the answer is yes. And, and one in particular that, that really stuck with me was one called uh, Neurologic and Psychiatric Manifestations of XLH in a Longitudinal Cohort Study. And this is the XLH-DMP. And this was, uh, was presented by Dr. Suzanne Jandeber from Johns Hopkins. And this was very interesting in that it looked at 651 patients, and it was it was mostly adults, but there were quite a few children in, in the study as well, all of them with XLH from 35 centers in six countries. It was quite comprehensive. And they were asking questions about neurologic conditions and psychiatric conditions, of course. What I found very interesting is that children with XLH frequently reported things such as headaches and Chiari malformations, craniosynostosis in a pretty significant, uh, significantly high manner, whereas adults with XLH reported a slightly different set of conditions, a lot of problems with hearing loss, tinnitus, also had headaches though, and spinal stenosis and enthesopathy. So some of the things I think we kind of knew with, with patients with XLH, but some of the things I don't think we knew as much. The other thing that I thought was particularly interesting is they demonstrated, especially in the adults with XLH, Depression and anxiety are really frequently seen in these patients. And I have to admit, that is not something that I had appreciated quite so much in comparison to the general population. Uh, adults also had a, a significant rate of insomnia, which I, I also didn't appreciate. In both cases, maybe I should have appreciated those things. But to me, this was very interesting and, and really very actionable pretty immediately to when I'm taking care of my patients with XLH. So it does translate to your clinical practice, Eric? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm thinking about this and I and in the, my patients that I'm even seeing next week with XLH, you know, I plan to screen them for headache, anxiety and depression going forward in, in a much more intentional manner that I hadn't been doing previously. And so this is really a way that novel research that's presented at ASBMR can go straight into clinical practice to improve patient care. So Marilise, were there any other novel abstracts that really caught your attention? Yes, this is one that is about FOP, fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. Uh, there's a very new, innovative concept and design, which was presented by Jessica Pierce, entitled The Microbiome Contributed to the 
endocondyl heterotopic ossification and FOP mice, they used the knowledge of a recently demonstrated effect that commensal microbiota of the gut inflammatory tone and monocyte uh, macrophage recruitment in injury sites. So because inflammation plays a major role in the first stage of the flare-up in FOP, they examined in an unusable FOP mouse model whether a cocktail of antibiotics could ablate the gut microbiome and thereby produce less inflammation locally and less bone formation after a local trauma in FOP patients. And it was astonishing. They really showed that there was a reduction in the inflammation, inflammation cells, but also in heterotopic bone formation locally. They then transplanted bone marrow monocytes from control mice into these mice and showed that the inflammation locally and the heterotopic bone formation increased again. So monocytes at least play an important role and it's a total in, in FOP flare-ups and in bone formation in FOP as a total new concept that should be explored further. I agree. I thought this was an incredibly interesting study. And, and when I was hearing Dr. Pierce discuss this study, you know, my mind was kind of going all over the place with ways that you could influence the microbiome that could impede the initiation of heterotopic ossification in these patients. So I'm, I'm automatically kind of going towards the patient care because that's really where, where I spend the majority of my time. And, you know, obviously a lot of steps between when a study like this is presented and, and when it's ready for, for more consideration in humans. But I thought this was very interesting foundational work and, and, and a really nice study overall. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's a new concept. Well, it is at the beginning and uh, much to be learned and to find out, but it's it's really interesting. Absolutely. And as we've just discussed, you know, we really have made a lot of progress with research in the rare bone field during this conference alone. And, and I would just say the last few years, you know, I feel very fortunate to have, have come into the rare bone space when I did, because I think the last decade has been an absolutely incredible journey in rare bones. And if we look to the future in this area, I see a lot of cause for optimism for our patients. Some things that I'm really excited about for the future include the cetruzumab trial in children with OI. We previously looked at cetruzumab in an adult population and the results were quite promising. And so I'm certainly very excited to see what the results of cetruzumab in children with OI will look like. I'm also very excited about the INZ701 trial for adults with ENPP1 deficiency. As you may know, this is a condition with a significant morbidity and mortality. And so it's very exciting to see a possible targeted therapy for these patients. What about you, Marilise? What do you see as new concepts or approaches for the future? Well, I totally agree. Uh, new concepts, new treatments, which are so needed for all these rare bone diseases. But I also uh, was very interested by an abstract. There's a new concept in understanding rare bone diseases and maybe uh, towards more diagnostic procedures. That was uh, from the group of Carola Silicons and her team. It's called the prevalence of monogenetic bone disorders in a Dutch cohort of AFF patients. That means atypical femur uh, fracture patients. They focused on the atypical femur femur fractures, which are often attributed to the biphosphonates. And mostly they are stopped. But this time they search for the underlying causes and they examined whether an underlying monogenetic bone disease was present in this cohort of 60 patients. Based on the outcome, a third of this population is likely to have a monogenetic disorder. 
The study includes, however, patients with different diseases and mutations. So it is a question whether uh, something can be said about the underlying mechanism. But at least we have to look further when these fractures uh, manifestate or occurs. There's also a question if AFF is also a problem in polygenetic osteoporosis. These data don't say anything about that, but I think it is important that we look further for a rare diseases or rare uh, fractures, also genetically. What do you think, Eric? Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I think that our, our modern genomics has really changed everything and we're getting progressively better at the monogenic bone disorders. I wouldn't pretend we've got that problem solved completely, but we've made a lot of progress there. And I think the next frontier is really exploring those those polygenic or multifactorial bone disorders that can predispose those patients to uh, to, to atypical femur fractures, osteoporosis, you know, other other uh, bone manifestations. So I think it's very exciting for the future. Well, well thank you, Marylise, for a very interesting discussion. So uh, just to summarize our thoughts today, you know, we're really looking at rare bone disease in ever broader ways, including looking at important issues like how we deliver care to our patients and how their diseases affect their lives and those of loved ones and caregivers. We're seeing that presentations at ASBMR can immediately translate to changes in our clinical practice and in other, other cases provide very interesting preliminary data for further investigation. And that better understanding of genomics and the continual innovation and in targeted therapy will provide additional causes for optimism and better treatment with patients with rare bone disorders. So I'd like to thank our listeners, and we would encourage you to tune in to our other podcasts from the ASBMR 2021 series. So thank you again, and I look forward to seeing everyone, hopefully in person, in 2022. This podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.